you have your Bibles, I invite you to grab them and, and turn with me to the book of Romans this morning. And as always, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, left at home or even in the car, uh, that is okay. There should be a blue one on the end of your pew or the pew in front of you. Feel free to grab one of those or, or maybe a, a phone or a device you have that has a Bible app. Whatever you prefer, grab a Bible so that you can see and read God's Word with us as we study it together this morning. Uh, we have been in, in Romans now for over a year, uh, running on a year and a half. We started it last July, so uh, a year and a few months. But we are finishing up the 11th chapter this morning, and I, I want to read to you, uh, beginning in verse 33, going all the way through the end of the chapter in verse 36. This is a wonderful, wonderful passage. It is a, a, a passage of praise. And I'm excited to study it and read it with you this morning. So look with me in Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 33. This is what Paul writes. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Pray with me. Father, the the choir has led us to ask a question. Are you worthy? Are you worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? And the choir has not only asked us this question, they have answered this question for us. You are. And so, Father, help us to... Give you all blessing and honor and glory, not because we have to, not because we are commanded to, not because we do it begrudgingly, but because of the simple reason you are worthy of it. Help us this morning as we study your word, help us to see just how worthy you are of these things, just how worthy you are to receive all glory forever. Be magnified, Father, be magnified in your word as it goes forth to and among your people. Be magnified. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's begin this morning with a question. What comes to mind when you hear the word theology? It's kind of a loaded question because I think that there's. Part of us in this room that hear that word and our heart starts racing a little bit because we get excited. Yes, theology, we love it. And I think the other part of the room hears that word and our hearts race a little bit because he's about to go off into a bunch of big words that we need dictionaries to understand. I I think theology is. It's such a a beautiful thing, and and I think that we we have all these these connotations that come to our mind when we think and hear this word theology. But, but I, think that, I think that we have 
hurt ourselves in the church. That we have, we have relegated theology and theological study to the universities and to the seminaries and to the pulpits and, and to those Christians who really, really, really enjoy reading the Bible and studying books about it. They're the ones that theology is for, but for the rest of us, we just don't really need it. And I think that we, we've, we hurt ourselves in, in understanding theology this way. Oh, we see this happening. I, I see this happening in so many churches. Theological depth is missing. People just don't want to spend their time in worship on Sunday mornings trying to think through what the, all the big words mean. And we'd rather have the pastor just tell us ways that we need to do better and then sing songs that help us feel better before we start work again the next day. And so worship, whether it's musical worship or preaching Worship gets boiled down to how things make us feel. And we condense our worship not into worship of God, but into a personal experience of what we have felt. I think this is a big mistake, church. Because without theology, worship, you see, becomes nothing. Worship becomes empty without theology. If there is no theology, there is no worship of God because theology always leads us to worship or or to put it another way. Theology leads always leads to doxology. See, think about the, the, the worship songs that we sing. What makes a good worship song? It isn't the style of music or what instruments are used in, in playing the song or even what year the song was written. What makes a good, rich worship song is the theology that that song teaches us to sing. It's the words, it's the depth, it's the truth about God that we sing and that makes that worship song truly worshipful. And what makes a good worship service isn't whether the pastor can keep you awake or tell really good, funny stories. What makes this time special every week as we gather in worship is that as we, the people of God, learn more about who God is and what God has done and what God is doing or will do. That's what theology is. As we learn more theology. As we come to a deeper understanding of who God is. It leads us to one primary response. Worship. Doxology, glorifying God for who he is and what he's done. I mean, this is why we we follow in our order of worship every week. There's things that don't change. And two of those things that never change are our confession of faith and the Apostles Creed, which is immediately followed by the doxology. It is theology, what we believe immediately leading into Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Because theology leads to doxology. Always. Over the last few weeks, as we've been trekking through Romans 11, this has been a difficult and yet a rewarding journey. But now we've reached the end and... And what we find at the end of Paul's theology, for that's what this has been up to this point, what we find here at the end of theology is doxology. It's worship. 
It's, it's almost this spontaneous outburst that comes out of nowhere. It just sort of jumps off the pages because Paul just can't help himself. He reaches a point in his theology and understanding and proclaiming all that God has done. And he just has to get it out. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom of knowledge of God. And what I, I want us to do this morning, I, I want us as a church to understand how we rightly respond to the theology of God. That's it. When we study theology, when we come to understand who God is and what he's done, how do we respond to this? What is theology meant to do in us? And it is meant to lead us to worship. And so as we begin, I just want to walk through these verses with you. I want you to see, I want you to feel what Paul felt as he wrote these words. And to begin, we, we look at this first verse, verse 33, as Paul considers the depth of the riches of God. Paul begins this doxology with these two exclamation points, two shouts of praise and wonder at what God has revealed to us. You can see it in verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. Such a great verse. Let's let's break down what Paul is, is saying. Because first, Paul considers something deep. He considers the depths of God's riches. And he could have used a lot of different words to describe the riches of God. He could have used heights. He could have used breadth. He could have used the length. But instead, Paul considers how deep. And I think he chooses depth because of how we as humans respond to things that are deep. I mean, I, I don't consider myself to be afraid of heights, but I would also say that have no problem telling you that if you put me on the cliff of a mountain, my heart's going to race and my knees are going to shake. But the reality is, is if you take me from that same mountaintop and put me at its bottom and look up, I'm not as afraid. Because the people that are afraid of heights aren't afraid of heights. They're afraid of depths and what happens when they fall into those depths. Uh, a few years ago, when we went to, to Ecuador, uh, me and, and Michael and Bill, as we were our last day there, we were leaving Shell and we were coming back to Quito for the ride home, the flight home. And Jonathan pulled off off the highway and he said, I want to show you this this really neat thing. And so he pulled off and we're there on this this overlook and we're sort of looking out over. There's these beautiful mountains in the distance and right below these mountains, in between the mountains and, and us is this lake. And it wasn't really a big lake. It didn't. It was really more of a, a large pond. But it was beautiful. And so we were thankful for it. But at the same time, wondering, like, why did we stop to see this? And Jonathan said, well, the thing that makes this lake special is we don't know how deep it is. And I said, like, no one's ever, like, scuba dived down there or sent down things. He said, oh, no, no, no they have. They've sent down technology. They've sent down robotic submarines. They've scuba... But no one can find the bottom. And I said, but that that doesn't seem right. I mean, we have all of this technology. We have cameras that can film and record creatures on the depths of the ocean floor. But you're telling me this large pond in Ecuador, you can't find the bottom. And he said, no, and I'll do you one better. A few years ago, there was a train track that that ran right by this this lake. 
And tragically, the train one day hopped the tracks and went plummeting into the lake. We've never found a single piece of this train. It disappeared into the bottomless depths of this lake. And I remember standing there over this lake going, this is terrifying. Who knows what horrors rest at the bottom of this thing? And I I can't imagine, I mean, just standing there pondering, there's, there's something this deep that is still in our world that we just cannot reach the bottom of it. And yet, all at the same time, that lake has absolutely nothing to say on the depths of the riches of God. I mean, here we stood on the edge of this bottomless lake, and yet that looked like a drop in a bucket compared to the depths that Paul considers here. And as as Paul is considering all that God has done and all that that God is, as he considers these depths, he just stands in awe. He stands there in awe and wonder at this stopping point in Romans 11 as he considers something that could be so deep and something so wonderful and yet something so terrifying and glorious all at the same time. Here, the riches of God, how could they be so deep? But what are these these deep riches that Paul is pondering here? And now if you if you're reading the the ESV as as I am reading, it reads verse 33 reads as if we're talking about three separate things. We're talking about the depth of the riches and the depth of the wisdom and the depth of the knowledge of God. And I think that's an appropriate reading of it. We can understand it that way. But I actually think that Paul is is not talking about three things that are deep. I think he's talking about the depth of the riches and then explaining to us what those riches are. So he's saying it's the depth of the riches of God, which are found in his wisdom and his knowledge. The riches of the wisdom of God, the riches of the knowledge of God, these two things, these riches are so incredibly deep that we cannot possibly attempt to reach the bottom. And so he considers them, and I think we should too consider, church, that the depth of the riches of God's knowledge. God's knowledge, church, is complete. It lacks nothing. There's there's nothing that God does not know. Past, present, future, he holds it all in his hand and he knows it already. There is no historical event that has ever caught him off guard. There is no thought you've ever thunk that has ever surprised God. He knows it already. And the reality is that the, this depth of God's knowledge is, is terrifying. There's no other way to put it. To, to know that God knows everything should create in us an uneasiness. At least it did for David when he wrote Psalm 139. You read this, this psalm and David is, begins this psalm very uneasy. Oh Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. You know, when I sit down and when I stand up, you you search out my path and you know my thoughts from afar. Before a word is even on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Such knowledge is too much for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. 
And David continues, because this knowledge of God makes him so uneasy in the psalm, he begins thinking of all the different places that he could possibly hide. Well, maybe if I go up to the heights of the mountains, maybe I'll I'll be able to hide there. Nope, that doesn't work. Maybe if I descend into Sheol, into the grave, and hide in the darkness dark, maybe there God won't know me. And David says, but even there, the darkness is as light to you. You see, God, you you see me just as good in that deep darkness as you do in broad daylight. You see, it's not just that God knows everything that I do. It's, it's, it's that he knows what I think before I think it. And he knows what I say before I say it. And he knows what he knows everything. He knows every day of my life before it comes. And there's nowhere that I can possibly hope to flee where he does not see me. And when we consider the, the hidden darkness within us. Those thoughts, those actions, those sins that we don't let anyone else in our lives in. All the, all the defenses that we put up, all the walls that we build to, to protect ourselves from ever being truly known. Because it might hurt somebody or it might scare people away. All of these defenses that we build, God walks right through them all. As if they weren't even there. And it is a terrifying and yet comforting understanding All at the same time that God could possibly know me as fully as he does. But in that deep knowledge, there is a love that is unsurpassed. God not only knows into every intimate detail of you, of your life. God not only knows every sin that you've ever committed or ever will commit. God not only knows every wrong thought you've ever had. He loves you despite all of it. He knows you fully better than anyone else ever has or ever will. And he loves you still. I think we could stop here. We could consider this the depth of God's knowledge of us and just... Walk away and say, that's that's enough considering for me. I, I can't consider anymore. But Paul's not even close to being done. Because then he says for us to consider the depth of the riches of God's wisdom. This this last week at Rising, we began a study with our older students on Proverbs and on wisdom. And so I posed the question to them. I said, what's the difference between knowledge and wisdom and I'm sure you would have no problem guessing who quipped this, especially if you know her mother. But she she famously quipped back and said, knowledge is knowing that tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing that a tomato doesn't belong in a fruit salad. And and so very, very poetically, I, I think she hit the nail on the head. Wisdom is knowledge applied. Now, we've spent the last several months here working, working back through this section of Romans that began in chapter 9. And Paul has been burdened by his, his heart and his concern over the nation of Israel. That what's going to happen to the people of Israel, God's covenant people of the Old Testament? Because they've rejected Christ and they've rejected the gospel. And, and Paul has shared this, this burden And now we've been seeing not only this this plan of God unfold over the last several weeks in chapter 11, but but Paul has been showing us the wisdom of God's plan. 
And he, he says, oh, the depths of this wisdom, the, the depths of how how wise God's plan truly is. And we could we could go back to Romans nine. But honestly, the end of Romans 11 is the end of a first big chunk of Romans. And it actually goes all the way back to Romans one. Romans one, where we could we could go back and and ponder this this wisdom of God, how how God explained the, in Romans one, the wrath of God for all unrighteousness that the Gentiles, these inventors of doing evil things, had exchanged the glory of the creator and began worshiping the creature living in sin in this total depravity. From there, we could keep moving through and see in chapter two how how Paul also says, but Israel's no different. Even though they had the law of God, they did not obey the law of God and therefore were deserving of the same judgment and wrath that the Gentiles were. And then we can move into to chapter three, where where Paul says very clearly, there is none righteous, no one who does good. And famously in Romans three, twenty three, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the problem isn't that we can't do what is right. The problem is that this is not how we are saved by doing what is what God commands us. The, the, the solution that God provides is faith. The righteousness of God has been revealed through faith in Jesus Christ. He talks about Abraham in chapter four, how his faith, it was his faith, not his works, his faith that was counted as righteousness. And then in chapter five, he he showed us the hope that we have in Christ, that just as in Adam, all sinned and died in Christ, all believe and live. In Romans six, how. That we are no longer to be slaves to sin because we have died to that in Christ. And therefore, we must now live not as slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. In Romans seven, Paul tells us how hard And broken this is because even though we are dead to sin, even though we do believe and have life in Christ, we still find working in our bodies this body of death and sin and the frustration that came out from Paul's writing that wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this body of death? Praise be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Romans eight, we we saw the, the promises of God being given out to us. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that you have been adopted by God as his children, that you've been given his spirit that intercedes for you and helps you in your weakness, praying for you with groans that words cannot describe. And there is absolutely nothing in this entire creation, not in earth, not in heaven, not from one corner of the universe to the other that could ever hope to separate you from the love of God. And all of this being unfolded and all of this being displayed for us in Romans moved us into chapter 9 and 10 and 11 where Paul talked about the, the, the burden that he had for Israel. And that even though it looked like Israel was lost and even though it looked like Israel had been cast out, God had a plan to redeem them. And that when the fullness of the Gentiles is going to be grafted in, he will relent of his hardening of the nation of Israel and he will bring them in through faith in Jesus. Paul says this is the wisdom of God on full display. Going all the way back to Romans one, this is the plan of God for salvation. This is his wisdom being poured out and shown to us. Paul says Of course this is deep. 
Of course there's a depth here. Of course it feels like this is bottomless because who would have planned it out like this? I mean, how many of us would look at this plan, even just specifics of his plan and say, yeah, that's how I would have done it. Good job, God. I mean, no, we read through this and go, why on earth, God, would your plan involve hardening Israel? Why on earth would your plan involve bringing in people who want nothing to do with you? I mean, there has to be a better way than this, right? And I think we can be honest with ourselves here and and we can look back, not not even at, at Romans, but we can look at our own lives. Look back over the decades and the years of your life and you look at that and go. And then considering the fact that God not only knew every step that you take, but he ordained it to be exactly like it has been. And you go, God, wasn't there a better way than this? Couldn't you have brought me to this point through a thousand better ways? And yet you chose this path? I mean, I can I can look at my own life and all the various seasons that God has brought me through and I can think, God, surely there was a better path for me than this. Why didn't you do it another way? Or we could look at the story of Ruth. And Naomi. And say, God, wasn't wasn't there a better way for these two women? Did they have to go into a foreign land and lose their husbands without children to sickness and death and be cast out? Wasn't there a better path that did not result in Naomi changing her name from friend to bitterness? Why did your plan for Naomi and Ruth include this bitterness and heartbreak? And yet at the end of that story, we remember and we read that God's plan not only was wise and good, but his plan was to bring them through these two women, not only through that heartbreak and loss, but to incorporate them into the line of David and ultimately the line of Jesus. And see, every time you and I are forced and we, we raise these questions about God's plan and God's path for our lives, and we want to raise these questions and so, God, why are you doing it like this? Never stop. Hear the words of Paul. Can you not see the depths of God's wisdom? Do you not know that God's plans are best and wisest? That there is no better way than this. And Christian, you may think that God could have or should have done things differently in your life. But what you need to know this morning is That the wisdom of God is deeper than you could ever imagine it to be. Just look at all that God has done in working out his plan of salvation as we've been studying this in Romans. Look at all that he has revealed in this letter and consider just how truly deep his wisdom runs. We may not have done it like God did it, but that should only let us see that we don't know everything. And we are not wise in everything that our that in our knowledge and in our wisdom, there is a bottom. It is not as deep as we like to think it is. And this is why Paul cries out 
After considering the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, he cries out, how unsearchable are his ways and how how are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways? Because here's a, a level in which Paul is saying, we can't know this. No one would have been able to just stumble upon the plan of God for salvation on their own. Because there is a, a level to God's wisdom that is untraceable. You can't follow it. Unless he reveals it. And so there's a there's a level that say we just can't know what God is doing all the time. And at the same time, there's a level of this that says we should trust him in this, even though we can't see it. Because this is such a wonderful thing for us to consider as Paul continues and he quotes out of Isaiah and out of Job. And he says, who has known the mind of the Lord, who has given counsel to him? Who looks at God's plan and says, you know what, God, let me give you some advice here. Well, who who looks at the plans of God and says, let me help you out of this jam. And then he continues and he says, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Who has initiated the relationship with God? Who has who has come to God first and says, well, let me give you this. And then somewhere down the road, you can return the favor, God. I mean, can anyone stand before him and say, you owe me for what I did for you? Can anyone stand in front of God and said, well, I see why you did it, but I would have done it differently. All that you have and all that you've been through, Christian, all the ways that God has sustained and carried and taught and revealed to you his plan. All of this has been because of his grace to you. And because of the depth of his riches, of his wisdom and his knowledge by which he gives you this grace. And all of this leads, Paul, to a very simple statement, a revelation about who God truly is. Look at verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I mean, look at it. It's such a simple statement. I mean, you don't even need a high school diploma to memorize this verse. And yet in this simplicity is a God that goes beyond our understanding. See, first, God, he, this statement reveals that God is, is the creator of all things. From him are all things. John 1 says all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. There is nothing in this entire universe from the largest black hole out in space to the tiniest microscopic atom on this planet. There is nothing that God did not make. All things are from him. And if all things are from him, then all things belong to him. Even you, the very breath in your lungs, it belongs to him. So all things are from him and all things are through him, which means he sustains all things. God is not some cosmic clockmaker who who put all the gears in place around his world, wound it up and then let it spin. It's not what he does. He sustains. Hebrews one says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power, that God is actively sustaining this world, which means that the reason that our planet doesn't spin off into the universe is because God is firmly holding its orbit around the sun. 
The reason that your heart doesn't just stop beating is because God's hand is wrapped around it, actively pumping it, sustaining it. Moving your blood cells through your veins and arteries. That there is nothing in our world that is not being actively sustained and fed and kept alive by the sovereign, all-powerful hand of God. He sustains you every single second of every single minute of every single hour of every single day for your entire life. He is sustaining you. And not only are all things from him and not only are all things through him, but Paul says all things are to him, which means he is the goal of all things. He is the finish line. He is the aim. He is it. Everything is working towards an end. And Paul is saying that that end is God. He is the purpose of all things, the final aim for all things, and the reason for all things. And there is nothing that will ever happen that does not result in God receiving the glory for all things. This is why Paul concludes this chapter. To him be glory forever. It's because he's worth it. He created all things. He sustains all things. And he receives glory for all things because all things are his. Church, this is this is theology. This is what theology is. It is understanding who God is and what God has done and what God is worthy of. But if we stop here, then we miss Where all of this theology led Paul. We miss the purpose and the reason that that led Paul to write these verses. I mean, what's the point of knowing all of this about God if it doesn't actually change anything in us? Knowledge so easily puffs up. But the true purpose of theology, the, the true reason that we are called to know God is so that we can worship him. And I want to point your attention here as we apply these verses, really just two words, the first word and the last word of this section. That's it. These two words show us how we ought to respond to theology. The first word, oh. It seems like such a a simple word, doesn't it? It's almost a, a throwaway word. We, we, when we read this verse, we, we, we tend to just sort of skip over that word and read into the, the rest of it. But let me assure you, this word is so rich and so necessary and so meaningful. Because here in this two-letter word is an insight into Paul's own response to the teachings of this letter. You see, we know from when we read later on in this book that Paul is not actually writing out Romans by his own hand. But he is dictating it to a scribe, a friend of his, who is writing it for him. Because Paul is getting old in age and he's having health problems with his vision and his, his physical, he's having, struggling with his physical strength. And so instead of him writing this letter, he is actually speaking it and, and sort of preaching it to a scribe who's writing it down as Paul goes. And you can almost picture this, this scene where Paul has just spent 11 chapters of just saying all of this stuff that he's been saying. Walking through chapter by chapter by chapter and saying, write this and write this and write this and write this. But he's not numb to the things that he's been saying. 
And instead, he gets to this point in Romans 11 and the the reality and the weight and the, the truthfulness of everything that he's just been speaking sort of hits him. He just goes, oh, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. He just he reaches this point in the letter and he just he just stops and this this the weight of it just washes over him and he just oh and it seems strange to even call this a word it's just a response it's just the the sound that a deep breath makes as it leaves your lips because you only ever say oh like this. When something, when you, when you hear or see something that sort of catches you off guard, something that, that causes you to stop what you're doing, to, to stop in your tracks and to pause and just let the moment sink in. Oh. And I can't think of a more profound, a more appropriate response to the gospel than this. I mean, consider it, church. I am a sinner. Lost, broken, unrighteous, deserving hell for wickedness, for my own sin. Oh. That God knows me better than I know myself, which means that he sees the depths of my own sin better than even I do. Oh. But God does not abandon me or forsake me because of my sin. Instead, he steps into my world. He comes to my planet. And he lives perfectly in all the ways that I have failed. Oh. And although he was perfect, and although he he is the only person to ever be undeserving of death, he embraced judgment and death for me. Oh. And he died in my place, and he received what I deserved. Oh. Oh. But then, with his sacrifice being sufficient to atone for my sins, God raised him up and resurrected him to new life. And now has declared me to be righteous in him. And despite all my failures and despite all the ways that I continue to sin, despite all the times that I break, God still looks at me because of Christ and says, well done, good and faithful. Oh. And when this life has when this life has run its course for me, and when my final breath escapes my lungs, and I join him in heaven, I will see him as he is, with unveiled face, beholding the true glory of God. And on that face I will see the smile of a loving father who went to the depths of hell to save me. Oh. Oh. And then one day he will come back to this world and he will one day defeat death itself. He will redeem and he will restore this creation and he will return it to how it was always meant to be. Perfect, without sin, without sickness, without death, without pain and heartbreak and tragedy, without any of it. And that we will live there with him forever. Oh. Oh, how great 
this love. How how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful is this love of God for his people. Is there any other response that we could possibly hope to give other than just this? This. Oh. Oh. Christian, let me encourage you here. Never stop standing in awe of who God is and what he's done. Never stop saying, oh. The last word. Verse 36. Amen. And I know that we're familiar with this word and we won't spend a lot of time here. We say it every time we pray. But amen, let me assure you, is more than just a period to our prayers. Amen is not how God says goodbye. Amen means so much more. Paul says amen immediately following this doxology because amen means two things. It means A, this is true. Amen. Or B, let it be so for me. When we end our prayers, for example, this is what we mean. God, help me with this. Help me get through this day. In Christ's name, amen. Let it be so. Please do this. Let it be. Let it be. And Paul ends this this doxology with amen. And I I think he he means it directly attaching it to the the verse, the sentence right before it. Because he says to him be glory forever. Amen. Let it be. Let it be in my life. Let everything that I do, everything that I say, everything that I think, let it be that God receives glory for it all. Amen. Christian, there's no greater calling in your life than the glory of God. You will never waste a second of your life pursuing his glory. But this only happens when we rightly and we truly see God as who he is and understand all that he's done. And we come to the realization, not only that I must glorify God, but that he is worthy of being glorified. That's the question the choir asked in their anthem this morning. Is he? Is he worthy of it? Is he worthy of all blessing and all honor and all glory? And they answered it. He is. When you consider all that God has done, when you consider who he is, you will realize one thing above any, anything else, that he is worthy to be glorified. He is worthy to be exalted. He is worthy to be praised, to be worshipped. And that is what we must do. That is what we are created to do. Your purpose in this life, your goal, your aim in this world is the glory of God now and forever. Amen. Let it be so. Now, next week, we'll begin a new a new section in Romans, the final section where Paul will spend the rest of this letter actually showing us how the first 11 chapters apply in everyday living. But before we can even begin to study that and to begin to live like that. We have to first embrace this doxology. We, we have to first worship God for who he is and what he's done before we could ever hope to try and live for him. And so, church, knowing all of this and having studied the theology of God, do you now see that he is worthy of your worship, that he is worthy of your glory? 
Because that worship is profoundly simple. Worshiping God is responding to this theology with two simple words. Oh, amen. Pray with me. Father, let it be so. Let us glorify you for all that you've done and all that you are. May we never grow tired of it. May we never stop saying, oh, may we never stop saying, amen. Teach us these things. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.